This is Recovery Revolution Live. The episode you're about to listen to is live and unedited. If you'd like to join us on the live stream, you can find us on Facebook and YouTube. Facebook.com slash Recovery Revolution 100 or search Recovery Revolution Live on YouTube. I have still failed to get the fun intro music from Carl, so we're going to have this kind of chill music because I don't have his intro music. Once again, I'm a failure. No, you're not a failure. Let's ask for a volunteer. If there's anybody that's good with music that can that can get us a catchy I, intro. I literally, I literally just need to have, have Carl send me the, the track that he uses. It's really simple. I just keep forgetting to ask him for it. Well, we'll take that off your plate. You have enough jobs. Nah. If Carl, if you're listening, you send that track. If not, we're open to hearing some other people's tracks. Carl, right. if you're listening, and we know you are, send me that track. All right. Well, how's everybody doing this fine Thursday evening? Doing great, so man. Good. Doing great. I'm excited. JR in the building, post-op. Post-op. I'm a trooper. <laughs> yeah, you told me you weren't coming. Well, he wanted to meet me. There you go. I feel I honored. Mean, it it would have been should. rude if I wouldn't have showed up, at least to the green room. And then Brett, you know, kind of messaged me saying, come on, stay on the show. Okay, he didn't. <laughs> hey, Greg, what's up, buddy? Uh, he said he wanted to give us a shout out and he's on his way to a meeting. All right, Greg. Thanks for hopping on, man. Have a good meeting, buddy. Ashley, how are you doing this evening? I'm good. I'm hard hat hair don't care. Hmm? I said hard hat hair don't care. Well, it was hard hat hair until I washed it. Now it's just wet hair don't care. And actually, that would be a lie. It's kind of care where I would have worn the hard hat hair and I wouldn't have put <laughs> mascara on. So let's, it's, I'm a program of honesty. I care a little bit. Amanda, how are you doing? I am great. I'm excited to be here again. Glad to have you back on. Thank you. Somebody's got to fill Carl's shoes since he keeps skipping on us. Hey, I, I told you guys, you know, if, if, if I'm the woman, I mean, I'm the woman, you know, all you gotta yeah. do is ask. Brett, how are you doing? I am doing all right. I actually got off of work, uh, really early today. I only worked a half day today, which is unheard of. Uh, so I got to hang out with my family for a little bit, do some yard work. Um, I feel like I, I feel like I almost didn't even work today because I was home by like two o'clock. So it's kind of unusual for me. I'm usually home at about seven o'clock. So it's, it's really weird. Well, it sounds like a good productive day though. Still it was. Yeah. And that had... baby, that baby in the oven is still good. Still good. Yeah. She's growing or he or she, I, I guess we don't know yet. Yeah. Oh. Still, still growing. Well, everybody knows who we are. Let's let our guest introduce herself or somebody 
Did you have something ready, Brett? I, I have like a little, I pulled like a little section of her bio. Okay. Well, Brett, if, let's if introduce you, our guest. I would love to do that. Our guest tonight is Nadine. Hi, Nadine. Hello, everyone. Thank she, you for bringing me on. <laughs> yeah. She's a professional wellness coach and the executive director of Rise Together, a grassroots nonprofit organization that exists to prevent addiction by encouraging young people to use their voices for change. Love it. That's right. So that is definitely, thank you for just pulling a small piece of my bio because I know I sent you like pretty much an entire book. So um, thank you so much for that introduction. Yes, I am a professional wellness coach, recovery coach, and uh, executive director, person in long-term recovery. I'm also a TEDx speaker. If you haven't watched my TED Talk yet, be sure to check it out. Um, it's called The Secret to Being Enough. And I am somebody who is just incredibly proud of my recovery. Like I said, I stepped into recovery back in December of 2013, and it has been a beautiful journey. There's been so many things that have happened, and I'm just so excited to be able to come on here and share a little bit about the work that I've done and, you know, answer any questions that anybody has and uh, just, you know, provide, provide a space to, to have a good conversation. I'm excited that we're talking about youth because it's such a needed topic. You know, I have a 13 and 14 year old daughters um, and there's nothing more powerful than kids with passion because they really want the world to change and they deserve to have the best world we can give them. And I mean, they always talk about it in advocacy, like if you want something passed, go to a college campus and, and get some of those students on board because they work for free. They work, they advocate 24-7. And, so. and that's that's totally something that we saw. So I, you know, I can certainly uh, go back if that's what you're looking for, a little bit of backstory of who I am and, and the work that I do today. So um essentially I got started, like I said, back in 2013 and I stepped into recovery in December and not even a month later, I was introduced to the organization Rise Together and uh, some of the founders of that organization. And at the time they were just super new. It was just really very grassroots um, coming together to speak out about recovery. And for me, it, it was something that even though you know, I, I was saying this actually in the green room before we came on, but I was able to find recovery at the age of 20. So before I could even legally step foot in a bar, I found recovery from an opiate use disorder. And before that, I had no idea really what the word recovery even meant. I had never even really used it in my vocabulary before. It was not something that I was very much aware of. And so when I first got sober, I had no idea what I was doing, right? And most people don't. I moved up to Appleton, Wisconsin. It was a brand new community for me. I knew absolutely nobody except my sister and my brother-in-law because they let me detox in their basement. Also something I would never recommend to somebody, but it is the way that I had to get sober because I didn't have health insurance at the time. 
And I was able to find recovery and started getting involved in the recovery community here in Appleton. And I saw some people come into the meetings and such, um, having something called Rise Together on their t-shirt. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Like, what is that? And it wasn't long after that, that I was introduced to the founders of Rise Together. And like I said, they were just in the very beginning, like just had a mission statement put out, uh, just really wanting to speak out about uh, substance use and recovery. Because at that time in Wisconsin, there was a 60% increase in heroin related overdose deaths. And that 60% for us wasn't numbers, right? As you know, it was our friends and our family members and people that we loved, you know, that were a part of our community. And one of those people were one of my dear friends, Justin. And Justin had passed away just a few short weeks after I got sober. And in that time, I started to question absolutely everything. Like, why am I still here? You know, why did he pass and I didn't? Or why did those things happen to him when it was only a few weeks prior that I was doing the same dope he was and that it could have been, it should have been me, but it wasn't. And I had to wonder why it didn't make any sense to me. Like, why am I still here? What, you know, purpose do I even have on this earth? And I really started to question and I started to be curious about what my life potentially had for me. And in that, I was given the opportunity to share my story for the very first time. So when I met uh, and became a part of Rise Together, they asked if I would share my story. And at first I was like, hell no, I am never not going to expect me to step on any stage. It is not something I ever did even in high school. Like, no, thank you. Um, but I said that I would write it down. And I said I would write my story out and I would share it on social media. And I did that. And it was so powerful putting my voice out there and my story. And that not long after that, I had the opportunity to step on stage and share my story. And like I said, at first, I was like, no way. I am not going to do this. I remember preparing for my speech. I had all my note cards ready to go. Oh my God, you guys, I was like, I thought I was going to, <laughs> I thought I was just like, I thought I was going to faint. Like I didn't think, I thought I was going to fall off stage. I thought all of the worst things. I had such bad like social anxiety and stage fright. And I turned around to my friend at the time and I said, dude, there's no way I can do this. Like I'm going to puke. And he turned to me and said something that forever changed my life. He said, Nadine, it's your story. You can't mess it up. I was like, wow, <laughs> that's right. Like, that's my story. And for the first time, I felt like someone had given me permission to speak my truth and to share my story and to take the mask off and to not pretend anymore or act like I'm somebody else or, you know, hide from all the shame and guilt from all the mistakes and choices that I made. Hey, Heather. Um, I thought that it was so powerful for me that after I stepped up on stage, I shared my story. 
I don't even know what I said. I have no idea. And like, just imagine I was in a room full of 800 freshman students. Okay. Like some of the most judgmental people you'll ever meet. I was so nervous, but you guys, I stepped off stage that day and that's when I knew why I'm still here. And it was that day that I realized like how much I saw myself in these young people. And there was nothing and still is nothing that I wanted more than to create a safe and courageous space where these young people could feel like their voices matter because they do. And we do believe that the future is youth and it is going to be the next generation who is going to be able to take what we're giving to them and do something incredible with it. And that's initially kind of where my journey started with Rise Together. Rise Together itself very much started in a grassroots movement of speaking out all across the state of Wisconsin. We spoke in jails, prisons, treatment centers. We went to the state capitol, we went all the way to the nation's capital, just advocating for change because as individuals in recovery, what we saw was everybody else making decisions for us. And I know there's like a saying that people now say in recovery is like, no, what is it like? No, nothing for us without us. Yes. <laughs> yep. That's exactly right. And that is exactly how we felt. And so we, you know, if people weren't opening the doors, we were knocking them down because we were going to have our voices heard because we were sick and tired of seeing our friends and family members die. And so after that, we started speaking out. We traveled, uh, as like I said, all across the state. And within that, we started working with young people. At first, it started with students who were a little more at risk or students who are already struggling. And when we worked with those students, they were like, well, where were you before we got in trouble? Or where were you before we started using? So then we started speaking to high schoolers and the high schoolers were like, well, where were you in middle school when all of this really started to happen and when everything was starting to change? And that was when we started to move our way into working into high schools and middle schools. And over the last almost nine years, we have been in front of over 250,000 young people where wow. we've been able to educate, engage, and empower them to use their voices for change, to break the silence around topics like substance use, like mental health, suicide, bullying, I mean, you name it, and to create that safe space for them where they can stand up and say, hey, my voice matters too. Dude, there's nothing more powerful to me than that. That's amazing. I mean, that's something we're trying to uh, do here in South Carolina, too. We're trying to get programs into the middle schools and the high schools because that's where everything's starting. That's where the kids are experimenting. And like Amanda was saying uh, offline, uh, we had a, a recent spike in the overdoses. And I think she said uh, three teenagers OD'd in the last 24 hours. I mean, this, that's, it's, it's getting crazy out here. I mean, we have to change. We got to we got to change the rule book. I mean, yes. these guys these guys are still going by plays from you know 1980 that you know gonna lock you up and put you in jail and sober you up. That'll right. Fix us. <laughs> yeah. 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 I envy those those numbers. If if you were to hear the numbers in our area, it's it's. It's only, you know, the smaller communities, it's only going to get worse if we don't, you know, it's hitting other communities harder now. But, you know, you guys are going to see it more and more if we don't 
do something and youth are the answer. I fully believe they have, you know, they're still developing their ideas. They're still, you know, they still can be taught empathy and, you know, it's, they're not set in their ways and socio-emotional learning. And, and there's just like so much potential. It's so exciting because, you know, each, you know, I don't want to say child because they're, they're not children that you're working, you're, you know, they're youth, young adults, but they're, for each one that discovers their voice, that's, that's their self-esteem. That's, that's a life that's saved and possibly hundreds more that they touch. And that's, it's pretty powerful. It truly is. And and even to see, I mean, we still get messages now that we've been doing this for, you know, almost a decade. If we have seen students that are going on to college and even uh, like after college, like they have changed the trajectory of their future of even where they're going for their professionalism, right? So some of the students who have taken some of our programs or even like our coaching program, for example, they changed their course of working in a certain area to now working in human services or wanting to become a counselor or wanting to be that peer support and to help other people. And that's what youth want. And that's what we feel has been so powerful because what we did when we first got started is we just started asking questions. Like we would come in, sure, we would share our stories of recovery and we would, you know, educate through storytelling and just create this safe and brave space for them to stand up and speak out. But what we did in that process was ask them, like, how can we best serve you? Like, how can we show up for you? Because what we were seeing, especially when it comes to speaking or programs, you either get a really epic speaker to come in, they break the silence, they break down the silos and the walls, and they, you know, it's awesome. They create a good conversation. Maybe they leave a book and it's great for like a week and then everything kind of falls apart, right? Or nothing really changes. Or on the opposite end, you see a community brings in a really great program that they see working in Texas, for example, and it's working great there. So they think it's going to work great here. So they bring that program and try implementing it into a community that didn't ask for it. And so it's really hard. I think sometimes for students, they were like, well, either we're shoving programs down their throat or we're trying to get them to do things that they're not excited about. And so we came and we're like, we're going to take that away, right? We're going to come in and we're going to have a conversation and we're going to create a program that we can have to develop that like long-term change and long-term impact in the community. And so with that, we were able to survey students and we actually right now are partnered with um, Penn State College. We have about 10,000 pieces of data that we're going to be um, putting out there into the world and getting published here over the next several months. Um, but it's really unique data because it is asking students from a peer perspective on how we can support them. And the three top things that came back was number one, they just wanted to learn how to share their own story. They're like, how do we use our voice? How do we speak out like you do? How do we share our story? Because we've been through stuff, right? And we wanna talk about it. The second thing is they were asking for more education, more resources. 
I mean, how many times do you hear young people say, oh, I want to learn more about drugs and alcohol? Unless they're being silly about it, it's not very often. And so for young people to say, like, I want to know more, that's amazing. And the third one that we found is that young people wanted to learn how to support their peers. Because most of the time, they don't want to go to a teacher. They don't want to go to a therapist or a counselor or their parents. They want to go to somebody who has that lived experience, just like we do, right? That's why recovery coaches have become such a large thing, right? And so for young people to say, well, I want to have that peer resource right within our schools, then we as an organization, we've been taking that data and we started developing programs over the last several years to do exactly that, where we come in and we teach young people how to share their story, how to become peer coaches, how to use their voices for change and how to advocate not only just in their school or on a local level, but even a state level or a national level, kind of like we were saying before, when we give the young people the power to use their voice, like they are motivated, they are ready, they're like, tell me what to do and I'll do it. And it is because they are sick and tired of seeing what is going on in our nation and they're ready to make a difference and it's awesome. I want to, um, I think I, everything that you said was just so spot on. Um, and I respect, I respect you so, so deeply because the organization that I work for is called wake up Carolina. Um, our organization got started because our executive director, Nancy Shipman lost her son Creighton, um, at 19 years old to an overdose, um, pretty fresh out of treatment. She saw, uh, you know, a need in the group for a, a need in the community for a mom's group that led to a dad's group, sibling group. But the, the precious thing here is a young adult group. This young adult group is thir ages 13 to like 18 mostly. Um, and what I love about it and a lot of the things that you said, you know, um, a lot of these young adults, they don't want to say to tell their friends, what are you doing tonight? I'm going to a meeting, you know, it's embarrassing to them or they don't want people to know there's a lot of shame and stigma and, you know, all that surrounding, like we all know. So Nancy named the young adult meeting Creighton's house so that when a, when young adults want to go to this meeting, they say, I'm going to Creighton's house. And it sounds like just, just a friend's house. And that in our community is, it's a huge, I mean, they've had like 27 to like 30 kids, not kids, young adults at a time. Um, it's actually right now actually is ending at seven o'clock at night to like eight, eight thirty, And they have, I mean, 25 to 30 young adults. I'm working on it. Um, I'm old, <laughs> but it's amazing and it's powerful and they, they love recovery and they're, it's so supportive and they're so close and they just love being in that environment. And it's not a normal environment, right? Because in our community, um, especially like Mount Pleasant where like I live specifically, um, it's very, I don't want to say it's uppity or rich because that's not exactly what it is, but there's a lot of like, shh, you know, you, you head in the stand, right? Um, so 
they don't want to go out and party and they want to focus on, you know, the recovery. So they've started even doing stuff outside of the meeting. They do like um, at least at least once a month, they go to like the movies together or have a movie night in the office. Um, and we like wake up Carolina pays for the pizza and the snacks, the cupcakes. Um, we have like sober birthdays, you know, where they they celebrate um, they go to like the Festival of Lights at Christmas. Um, actually, this the 25th, they have a big event that's like a bowling event for like, you know, that they're doing with like Creighton's house, like group is doing. And that, like you and Ashley both said, is is what we need in our community, in all of our communities, because they are the future. And I feel like JR mentioned we're trying um, multiple different groups and organizations and people and parents, you know, some community members are trying so hard to get something done in the school district um, because they don't, it's like condoms, right? They don't want to, if, if we, if we give them condoms, we're condoning it. They don't want to have Narcan in the schools and might condone it. So we're really trying to get that kind of like some, they need a peer support or a counselor who understands addiction or um, narc, at least give the nurse Narcan. There's so many things that the youth are missing out on and we need, we need to be offering them and we're not, I don't know anywhere that does personally. I know I have a 12 year old girl and she already has friends that are smoking marijuana I mean, like, which, okay, you know, but she's 12. So it's, it's terrifying to me. Um, so what you're, the things that you're doing, I just, I have the utmost respect because I really, really hope that our community picks up the same things and similar things like you're doing because we all need it. I mean, you're, you're saving you're saving the future of, of your community. And that is just huge to me. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. And it is absolutely something that should be in every community. And so feel free to reach out and we can, you know, share resources or even ideas and be able to, you know, create this space where they have, like you said, I mean, even having a youth group for, you know, or a young adult group, like that is so needed and necessary. Um, and, and I think, yeah, I mean, and good for you, you know, I'm glad that your community is because a lot of communities are not. And especially when we look at, uh, for us, I mean, we spend so many years, uh, more in like the, uh, rural communities, especially in Northern Wisconsin, there's absolutely no resources. And I'm sure many of you have come across that. It's like, where do they go, you know, or what do they do? And a lot of them have absolutely even no education even around it. And so when you speak about Narcan, they're like, what's that? <laughs> when that is something that students should be aware of and young people should be aware of. And that's something that we actually just this last year started partnering with an organization um, called Serve URX and uh, Start Healing Now. Uh, but they both have are providing uh, what they call oak boxes and they are overdose aid recovery kits. Wait, overdose, wait, oak. Oh yeah, overdose aid 
kit uh, where they are giving, you know, the Narcan and a breathing mask and gloves and resource information and all of this stuff in one place. And those boxes need to be in every school. And that is something that we are especially working on. I know they're working in colleges. uh, But again, you know, like you said, they're afraid to because they think, well, oh, that's not happening in my community. Or if I, you know, have it here, then it's saying that we have it. There is such a stigma around it, but like you said, the reality is, is that it saves lives and we are especially advocating to have those, um, you know, resources available for young people, because even if it's not happening on the school grounds, it could be a friend or a family member or, you know, somebody else that they know that is being impacted where they're able to bring, you know, Narcan to them. Absolutely. And we, um, What's really cool, I don't know if it's like all states, but so, um, so we, we work by, we get our Narcan like through a grant and, um, we know the person that like pretty much made like the law for like the Good Samaritan Act. And so I know that it's not the same everywhere. So long story short, our Good Samaritan Act in South Carolina pretty much states that if you give somebody Narcan and they have a bad reaction to it, you cannot be held accountable, liable, whatever. Um, you know, it's safe. Nothing can hurt you. Um, you know, you can't ever be held liable for anything that happens, whether it's not an opioid overdose, you know, it's a benzo overdose and you don't know, but you give it to them. You're not held accountable. Um, also if you're at a party, and someone's overdosing and you call 911, you know, type thing. Um, They're not supposed to be held accountable for any legal things happen because, you know, people are dropping these kids off in woods. I mean, you know, like at the hospital doors and as all of us know, every second counts. So we don't have time for that. So we, um, we looked into it further because we had somebody um, like email us on our information line at wake up Carolina. And they said, how old, you know, how old do you have to be to be able to get trained and like carry Narcan? So we, before we answered, we wanted to make sure, you know, that we knew for sure. And it's any age here. So what my hope is, is that we can get parents to bring their children, you know, their children, but young adults to, um, of all ages, you know, to be trained in this because the schools are really, they really, really, really are pushing back. Um, now we've got we've we've gotten through to some. I mean, we are in the high schools locally. They are listening. We're going and telling stories. We're explaining what Narcan is. But we've had kids overdose from smoking marijuana because it's laced with fentanyl. They've like dipped it or something in fentanyl. I mean, it tested positive for fentanyl and it was marijuana. Like nobody can tell me different. I you know I know. Um, so it's just there is a need. And like you said, they don't want to admit there's a need. And I understand why you don't want to admit there's a need. I would love to be able to, I'd I'd love for there to not be a need, but there is one. And the longer that we continue to act like there isn't, the more innocent young adults, kids, adults, homeless people, recovery, you know, relapse, you know, I mean, all the things, the more people with Narcan, the more people that possibly don't die. So it is a, it's a very tricky situation, especially because it's a young adult. So if they're not of age yet, you know, that's a, it's a, you know, it's testy waters, right? But it's worth it. It's worth it because 
it is heartbreak. They don't even, I mean, these kids, these young adults, these kids, they're dying before their life has even started. And we just lost, um, the first like young adult in uh, our organization has been going for five years. Um, and we just lost the first young adult since we like, since wake up was started. Um, two days ago we found out and it when I say that it shook the organization I mean you know and then to find out the next morning that two more had you know young adults had passed um we have to do something doing nothing it's only the numbers are only going to grow so we have to do something and you are so I absolutely would love to connect with you and anything that I can do you know to we have to do something. I mean, that's just, it has to be, and you've got amazing, you know, the things that you were doing already are amazing. So I'd love to incorporate it in what we're doing. So. And sometimes I know like schools here um, are, it's, it's really hard. Um, I mean, you know, I'm part of an organization and we try to go into the schools and we can't because they don't want to talk about suicide because they believe that if we talk about it with youth, it's going to cause them to try to end their own lives by suicide. And that's, the data does not suggest that. It doesn't prove that. Um, just like when you give someone a safe place to talk about gender identity and sexual orientation, it doesn't change their sexual orientation or make them choose something. It gives them a safe place to talk about it and to, and, you know, I completely 100% agree that, you know, we need Narcan everywhere, but there is something else that is even simpler that is, you know, we have to fight for Narcan. I'm not taking that importance away, but connection is the key. And like, you know, they've shown the statistics show that like these, that youth that have fragmented relationships are more likely to engage in risky behavior. They're more likely to have these problems. So when they have these quality connections, when they make connections with other youth, when they're doing peer services, guess what? Peer services help us. Why wouldn't it help them? These are quality connections and it costs zero dollars. It's, it's, they can't keep connections out of schools. They can't keep connections you know so to me like and that's just my opinion is that's where I start because I can do that today like I can build connections today and it might take me a year to be able to get Narcan in school and it, it doesn't mean that I'm not gonna fight for that but in the meantime like connection is you know Shame is where we hide, and when we we hide, that's it's dangerous. Mm -hmm. Totally, a hundred percent, and and that is one of the biggest things that you know I saw for myself is that I was suffering in silence, and it was the secrets that I held, and it was the secrets that made me sick. Right, like that for me because I was so ashamed and I was afraid to talk about it, and. Sure, I started abusing substances at the age of 14 and it got out of control so quickly. You know, like by the time I was 17, I was already abusing opiates and 
that quickly led to intravenous drug use. And not only after that, then led to using heroin, right? And we know, we hear the stories and it happens so quickly. And here, like I was the one sitting back, like, oh, that's never going to be me. Like I got this under control, right? Like I know what I'm doing. It's no big deal. Or I'm not as bad as the next person. And it got so out of control. But like I said, like when I would go to school, I wasn't about to show up and talk about the things that were going on at home. I wasn't about to go to school and talk to my counselor or talk to even my friends at the time to say like, hey, I'm struggling or this is what I'm struggling with. I didn't even know how to talk about it. Not necessarily how, but who am I supposed to go talk to, right? Like I was not given those resources and I felt like I was so alone. I felt like I was the only one who was experiencing the things that I was experiencing. And that's just not the case, right? Like, that's just not true. Because when we go into schools, we'll ask students, how many of you today are being affected by somebody that's struggling with substance use or with their mental health? Nearly 100% of students raise their hand. But what's even more heartbreaking is when we do ask the question, hey, how many of you here have lost someone to an overdose? And you guys, the amount of young people that stand up to this question already at 13, 12, 11 years old, I was using substances in high school and I still didn't even know anybody that had passed away from an overdose. And to see how many young people are very aware of it. They very much know what's going on in their community. And when we create that space for them to talk about it, man, it's so powerful because they're, if they're not talking about it there, they're talking about it somewhere else, right? And if they don't have the resources or the tools, you know, they're not going to. And so for me, like I said, I suffered in silence. I would pretend to be somebody that I wasn't. I would put a fake smile on my face every day and pretend like everything was just fine because to me, it was easier that way. At least that's what I thought. And it wasn't until I realized like, oh, I don't have to suffer alone. And in fact, it wasn't even me that asked for help. It was, it was somebody reaching out to me saying, hey, Nadine, I love you. I am here for you. What can I do to help you and support you, you know, get out of this mess? Uh, because for me, I was way too, had such a strong chip on my shoulder to ask anybody for help because I was like, nope, I got this. I got it under control. I know what I'm doing. I don't need anybody else's help. But yet the whole world around me was already completely spinning out of control. It's like we have so many dreams and goals and aspirations in high school. And yet here we see so many young people who are falling off even after they'll graduate but then what? Like, there's just none of those support, you know, or resources for young people. So I just, yeah, I mean, even thank you so much for sharing some of the stuff that you guys are doing because it matters. So important. I, I heard about a high school that um, they started um, a podcast where, where, like, obviously we're podcasting now, but, you know, where the students did a podcast and they talked about bullying and they talked about all kinds of different um, struggles and they said that that was the thing that helped them the most and it was and how simple would that be to integrate into schools you know we used to when we were growing up we had like what was it the little news thing of the day and like like you know somebody was on and told you I think they did like the weather and they told you like a news clip and then it was like what's going on in the school like how cool would it be to integrate 
you know, podcast into high school where they could talk about this stuff. And instead of thinking that they're the only one being bullied, that they would realize there's a lot more people being bullied than are actually the bullies. And when they hear each other and come together, they can change that story. Yeah. Anybody, anybody remember the principal and her assistant in Greece when she'd come on the intercom, hit the ding ding. <laughs> I think I just showed yes. my age. <laughs> oh, I love that old lady. <laughs> She's <Yeah>. hilarious. <laughs> Okay, um, serious question. Okay, so they say, you know, addiction is a family disease, and if addiction affects one in three families, how does it affect the family dynamics of, say, the, the kids in the family? What, what uh, would you recommend, or how would you deal with something like that? If a, if a kid, you know, a middle schooler, like reaches reaches out to you know you or someone on your staff and says, you know my my mommy and my daddy are 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 struggling. You know my dad lost his job because he can't wake up in the morning. How would you deal with that? I mean, how how do you be a peer support to a a, a twelve year old? That's that's. Uh... So we so going back to what we provide. So we do provide that peer resource, like immediately following a workshop or a presentation. We typically hang out with the students for about 30 minutes to at least an hour afterwards to have those one on one conversations. What we're able to do in that space is to be a bridge, to be a resource for them, to get them in the right direction. Because for us, we're just breaking the silence, right? We're creating that conversation. We're creating that connection, right? That we were just mentioning before how, how vital that is, right? Because we have that already, because we have that lived experience, right? They're able to connect with us. And through that, they're able to know already that they're not alone, right? And like we were just saying before, that's what kids want to know is like, oh, I'm not the only one whose parents are struggling right now, or my family isn't the only one who's going through stuff like this. That just immediately helps young people. One of the second things that we often do is then direct them to local resources within the community because we are, you know, as an organization and as very, you know, small staff, we're only able to do so much. But when we're able to direct them at least to some local resources, whether it's in the school or within the area, uh, that is our next thing. The last thing that we often try to do, especially with young people, is to let them know that. For young people, they have so much weight on their shoulders and they think that it's their responsibility or they think it's because of them or it's their fault. And for us to remind them that adults are going to make decisions, no matter who they are, they're going to make their own decisions, right? We all have our own intrinsic responsibility to make our own choices. And I think that helping young people understand how important it is to have these conversations. Because what we do, like we said, is have that conversation, right? But what these young people are now able to do is they have the language or the tools to say, hey, when they go home that night, 
they can say, I had these speakers or we had this program come into our school where they were talking about recovery and they were talking about how they got over their addiction and how they're living a beautiful life. We want those young people to share that experience with their parents because even if maybe things don't change immediately, it's still helping the family dynamic to know, at least for the young person, that they're not alone. But yet again, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to talk about these things, you know, within their school or within their teachers and within the classroom. But what we've seen, especially when we go into communities, because we not only work with the middle school and high school, but we often try to do like a parent presentation in the evening. I'm telling you, most of the time, parents, I'm sorry, but they don't show up and it sucks. Most of the time we're speaking to only a few at a time, but the, the parents that came back were because the students went home that day and said, hey, you need to come to this presentation tonight, or hey, I need you to come meet these people, or I want you to hear about them. And you have no idea how many stories we've heard of parents getting into recovery, finding treatment, asking for help, just because their child came to them and said, I love you. I care about you. I want to see you recover. And now I met other people that have, and I know it's possible. I know it's possible for you. I was that, I was that mom. <laughs> um, I, I was that mom. Um, yeah. I, so my oldest is 12. My youngest is eight. When their dad died, my oldest was eight. My youngest was four. Uh, so they were some elementary school. And I struggled with addiction pretty much. I mean, my addiction, I'm not going to get into it, but it basically started with my C-section with my now 12-year-old. Um, that's when it like started um, with opiates. And so C-section, you know, all that. So it was bad, quick. It was quick, bad. So she grew up seeing me, you know, she grew up with her mom and dad both using. And it wasn't until she was probably in kindergarten that I realized that um, for, I was, I'm 32 years old with a 12 year old. So I had kids young. Um, all the moms were older than me. All the moms, you know, had nicer stuff than us. Um, you know, the moms had their ish together and I didn't, you know, I mean, I was good at faking it. I was very good, very, very, very good at, at faking it. I mean, better than most, but I still, you could still see it was different. Right. So I felt so guilty and fast forward years, I would have to be, I'd have to have oxys to be able to go to an event. So I'd be freaking out, like, how am I going to get drugs so that I'm high, so that I'm in a good mood and not sick, so I can go to the event to see my kid, blah, blah, blah. Um, that freaking sucks. Like, it sucks. It it just, it. I can't, I mean, I'm not going to say the word that, it, that I really want to say, um, but it sucks. And it was heart-wrenching. Um, like, made me want to puke, made me guilty. Um, I didn't deserve to have these amazing, you know, this amazing kid. Um, I felt so like embarrassed that I had to, even though nobody knew, um, I was late, you know, I mean, it was just a whole, you know, it was terrible and she had to deal with that. And fast forward now that I'm four years in recovery, um, she definitely sees, you know, um, the change. I mean, I'm a good mom. I show up, you know, I'm there. I'm on time. Well, I'm not really always on time. I'm really bad with time. I'll just, my time management's like for the birds, <laughs> like it's bad, but, um, but I'm, I'm present and she sees the work I do 
and because she saw so much, she knows more than she probably should. Um, you know, she knows about addiction, drugs, recovery, Narcan, you know, shooting up. My husband was a diabetic, so he had needles. So, you know, it. she knows way more than she should is the point. And so she has friends that um, hurts my heart now because when somebody goes to talk down to her, at least my dad didn't die of an overdose and my mom isn't an addict. My mom isn't a junkie, you know. And luckily, she's got some tough skin and she's like, you know, F you, you know, she's a recovering junkie, you know, not really, but, you know, like in recovery, um, she hits him back with whatever, you know, but it breaks my heart that like my, um, my substance use, even though I'm four years in recovery is still affecting my child, you know, it doesn't go away. And I'm very open with my recovery. So, I mean, if I would have just gotten in recovery four years ago and then not spoke on it and not shared like I do or not wear, ask me about Narcan training like my jacket says now. I mean, you know, I do HIV testing. It's all out there so everybody can see it. But she's proud of it. So it is so empowering for kids to be able to come home and not feel that burden like not not feel like oh is my mom going to be high is my mom not going to be high so she's going to be in a bad mood you know she's going to be lazy so having those speakers to is so I agree just a thousand percent because she didn't have them and I don't know what I would have done if she would have come up to me and been like mom I love you I want you to get sober or whatever you know whatever way she would have said it I don't know what I would have done to be honest I mean I, I really don't know um but she had to go through six different cases of DSS, which lasted a year each time. I was investigated six times. We had to have a protector each time, which was always my parents. So they've been through the ringer. So definitely parents, if they're watching now, if they watch later, um, you know, it, it affects them later. So the sooner that a parent can get into recovery of any sort, all recovery matters and counts, is, it's crucial. And those speakers are crucial. That's what I would love to see is just what you said, having speakers come and talk to the youth. So they're at least they're educated on it, you know. So here's the great thing about recovery is we recover together. So families recover together. They don't all have to be using substances. They don't all have to have the same thing that they're recovering from. There is not a single person in this world that doesn't have something that they need to recover from. And, you know, it's beautiful the fact that families can recover together instead of a mom having to keep her recovery secret because that changes the generational cycle. You know, your your child is it two times more likely, uh, something like that, to to develop a substance use disorder if you have one. But if you start talking about it and you, and they become familiar with the recovery world at a younger age and you teach them these resiliency and these coping skills, that doesn't mean they won't ever struggle, but they might not fall as hard. They'll have these positive coping skills that they can fall back on that they might be able to get themselves out. But the greatest part is not only do we recover together, but programs like that sell hope because those kids believe that their parents can recover. And when there's hope, 
that's when miracles happen. You're supposed to drop the microphone. Boom. No. I don't have one. So, so Nadine, let me ask you this. Your first time you said uh, you were public speaking, you spoke in front of seven, was it 700 freshmen? 800, but. 800, yeah, <laughs> give, or, give or take, you know, a couple, couple dozen. So you, you had to be super nervous. I mean, I know I would have. I mean, they got me fresh out the gate too, but my, my I mean, I, I thought 70 people was something huge. And I was nervous as hell. And I go back and I watch the uh, the video of it, and I'm like, I don't even know who that dude was. You know, Brett, right. and, a, Brett and AG will tell you I'm a shy guy. I'm, I'm like the the, the low key one here. Honestly, going back, I wish I, w <laughs> I wish I could have recorded mine because I would love to go back and see it the way that I. I mean, I know how much I've changed over the last eight years. I, you know. I've stepped on stage now hundreds and hundreds of times and even doing a TED talk, you know, that, I mean, that was totally different though than working and speaking in schools. But um, I mean, it's just been an experience and it's an honor. And I definitely feel it has been a gift that has been given to me because it is not just me. Um, I know that there is certainly my higher power speaking through me every single time because I know that I would not have the strength and especially still today you know if i were to be honest with you guys and like you kind of have been mentioning you know before um i've lost a lot of people in my life to substance use and and to addiction and especially over the last two years and it has been i mean in short all three of our grandsons have passed from a fentanyl overdose and 17 24 25 years old all within the last few years and it's freaking heartbreaking and it sucks. And I am educated and I do know that recovery is possible and I will speak it from the rooftops and to anybody who will listen. But I also know that fentanyl is killing people. And the more we can just speak out and create these spaces and let people know that recovery is possible and to you know, provide Narcan and the resources and all the things, you know, like I just, the fact that I'm able to still have the courage to speak out today after being so heavily impacted, what I know for sure is that I will never go back. Like I have been impacted in a way that my life has been drastically changed and i know god has a purpose for me and i'm going to continue to speak out and to share my story and hopefully encourage the next generation to do the same i'm now going into my 29th year and i think as soon as i hit my 30s i'm probably going to start working with maybe a little bit older generation but i'm ready for that next generation for those young women that i've been speaking to over the last few years to now take my place where they can start speaking to the young people and they can start sharing their stories and use their voices um, because I know it's starting to happen and I can like that is what fuels me it is what gives me the spark inside and the fire uh, to keep going because this work is not hard or is not hard is hard is not easy okay it is not easy by any means and there have been times especially in recovery where people fall but you know what you can get back up 
and recovery is possible for anyone. Like you said, no matter what it looks like, my recovery has looked so many different ways over the last several years. But what I know to me is that I am enough, that I do have a purpose and I was put here on this earth for a reason. And I'm going to continue to show up, you know, and, and keep putting my best foot forward to help create a difference in our community. Because at the end of the day, like that's all we can do, right? We can only do so much and do our part. But I do feel that, that this is, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. Now that was a mic drop right there. Boom. Thank you. Right. Where's the sound effect, man? Come on. I don't, I don't have a mic drop. Purpose sound to effect. The pain. I'll add that. I'll add that to the list. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love that spiel. I mean, uh, I'm, I feel the same way. I mean, uh, I know where I was at when I hit my, you know, 50th rock bottom and, you know, it did not look good at all. And, you know, I had cops coming down on me, getting ready to arrest me. And I was like, that's it. I'm done. I mean, come get me because I'm not going to run this time. And, and, and I, it was that surrendering point right there that probably changed my life. You know, and it was in a federal building, so 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 it was. It's crazy. The same federal building that hired me like two years later, and well, because I stood my ground and said, "I'm done. I can't run no more. I'm I'm done with the drugs. I'm going to try this sobriety thing out, see where it goes. I mean, if I go to prison for ten years, so be it. I'm just done with it. And I, I like I like what you said. You, when you just when you just know that you're done, you no more. You, no matter what's gonna happen, no matter what, what kind of shit show life's gonna throw on me, I'm I'm gonna stay sober through it. I mean, he, I've had some some health issues lately, and it's never crossed my mind to, to numb myself out. You know, I ain't even I don't even have an aspirin in me right now, and I'm in pain. <laughs> I was hearing about you guys tell about the first time you told your stories. It made me think of the first time I told mine, I was asked on Mother's Day to tell it at church. And it was like the scariest thing ever because, you know, I had always been taught to be perfect in church. And then, you know, I was a two-year-old coordinator using pain medication. And so, you know, I go in on Mother's Day and talk about, you know, all these sins I did in church and how I hid them and lied. And it was probably the first time I was 100% honest ever in church. And people were so receptive to it. Um, but it was so scary because it was Mother's Day. And Mother's Day at church is like a big deal. And so speaking of Mother's Day, I think that there might be a Father's Day coming up. And I would like to hear about what it's like to be in recovery as a father and to know that you have young children that are going to get to know a dad that's in recovery. Brett. It had to be you, buddy. I, I have no kids. So I was gonna say, I you count my furry ones. I was searching for a mic drop sound effect per JR's request. Sorry. Look at him with the bacon um, thing with, from Carl. Yeah, it's on a mic drop, though. <laughs> uh, what it's like to be a dad in recovery. Um, I think that's a great question. And, and one of the things that I'm grateful for is, is I too got clean at a pretty young age. Um, so my wife and, and my daughter have never seen me under the influence of any kind of substance. So I'm grateful for that. And 
for me, I think that there's just this level of gratitude that I have today to be able to have a family, to be able to be in the position that I'm in today and to, to be able to be a positive role model to my daughter and, and to have that relationship that I have with my wife, because for so long I was stuck in that self-centeredness and never let anyone in close to me, never really cared to have close relationships with anyone because I was just so focused on getting more drugs and staying high and doing whatever I could to, to stay in that, that mindset and, and stay in just, you know, make myself feel good. That instant gratification of fulfilling my own wants and needs. Um, and so today I'm able to, to be that, that father, to be that husband, to be present in the moment you know it it and it can still be hard you know there's so many distractions from our phones to work to all these things that that try to pull us in different directions but to be able to to try and and i'm not perfect at it but to to try to be present and to try to to be that person for them is is just an amazing thing is that a good answer ashley anything is gonna be it a good answer because you can't get your story and your truth wrong like Nadine said right it's your story i i do have something to say on that though i mean it's like uh i, I might be a little slightly older than all of y'all you know by one or two years so you know when i started this whole recovery revolution platform and i started bringing people in and like uh i could speak on you know ag here i met ag in mobilize in vegas and she was like this shy person seeing with all her book bags and fancy markers and i'm like you know uh, so we got to know each other over, over a course of a couple of days you know and when we got back and we were looking to add someone to the show and i was like how about ashley i mean i know she's got some mad potential she's super smart and she's got a big heart. She's 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 all in the recovery. I mean, I think she works like 12 jobs. That's not counting the five jobs I throw on her every week. So I uh, like so we brought her in and and for the first couple of shows, she was quiet, you know, laid back, you know, didn't want to speak. And then we finally slowly started getting her drawn into the conversation. So I've got to watch Ashley grow. I, I'm I'm getting to watch Amanda grow now too. And and Redbeard, you know, he's 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 the rock. He's the uh, if I, well, if I'm the father, he'd probably be like the uncle. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm getting to watch my whole team grow. You know, I'm waiting for Heather to, to step up and Chrissy. I want to hear them stories. And we had another one that just uh, her story just aired on chasing uh, heroin heroin with uh, with Janine Coulter. And so I'm getting to watch all of these people grow and I feel like I'm part of it, you know, and, and I'm a little bit, you know, gave them a push here when I thought they needed it. And, and, and it just, it just brings me joy. So, you know, I'm a happy father. When Heather and Chrissy are doing amazing things, they're just not in front of the camera being loud. They're, yeah. they're doing amazing things. I don't want them to think they're not. We're going to get you, Heather. 
I'm going a, I'm to a, I'm a call in sick one day. So I have trip. a question for you, Amanda. And I'm going to try try to ask it, but I think it's an important thing to ask So and it's sensitive. So if I get it wrong, I'm sorry in advance. So you have children and the loss of your husband and their dad. How do you honor him? on Father's Day or how do you have that conversation or, or, or what do you plan to do with? Um, so that's actually a really good question. Um, and you asked it flawlessly. Um, so for Father's Day, um, we actually, for Father's Day, for New Year's, for 4th of July and for his birthday, um, so for his birthday, we do a little something different. We normally do like um, chicken quesadillas. We make them, have a cake. Um, but so for Father's Day um, and the other type holidays I mentioned, we, you know, we keep his memory going all the time. The girls know that if um, they were, like I said, eight and four. So some, a lot of my four-year-old's memories um, are like, bits and pieces so I have to kind of help her fill them in which I'm always 100% there to do um and my eight-year-old remembers things but sometimes you know she doesn't you know I have to kind of like remind her of some things I have I'm a picture taker so I have millions of pictures thank god literally um so we go through pictures we talk about memories um we do we have one of our big things that we do that my um late husband kenny loved was that when his sister and his father passed away within two years of before he passed um we would get the chinese lanterns like the paper lanterns and light them and like you like lift them up you know to the sky and they're gorgeous i mean they're absolutely breathtaking and so sometimes they'll write on them or we'll at least like with a pencil because you know if they get way down they won't like fly up to heaven um, but I at least try to get a pencil and like kind of outline their handprints on it as they grow. And we say like a prayer, anything that we want to say, you know, before I light it, like holding on to it. And then we send it up to heaven to him. Um, we've done that since he died 12 days before his 28th birthday. So we started that 12 days after he died. Um, he loved doing the Chinese lanterns with, like I said, his sister and his, my father-in-law. Um, but so with him, we knew he'd love that. And we just memories, you know, um, my dad is a huge part of their life. So I make sure that, you know, we honor my dad a lot because he, you know, he does a lot for them and, you know, teaches them a lot. But I make sure that with my late husband, their father, that I am, you know, memories, pictures, Chinese lantern, um, and fireworks on like New Year's and Fourth of July, like I said, plus the lanterns, um, and all in his favorite color. That's a big thing for my eight-year-old, especially my twelve-year-old's like, just let's do it, because um, it that's important just to do it. But my eight-year-old is very, very, very specific about the colors of the Chinese lanterns because they're not just all white. You know, you've got purple, red, orange, every color. So his favorite colors were blue and red. Um, then it would be orange and green. So we have a list and um, so I try to get red and blue. And if I can't, you know, she deals with it, but most of the time I can find it. And 
that's that's kind of you know how we honor him is just making sure that his memory is kept alive um and we send him you know the chinese lantern as a gift and as our just reminder that we love him and we're thinking about him um on all those holidays that's really amazing and i'm i'm glad you guys talk about it and celebrate his life because i lost my dad when i was 11 and we didn't talk about it it was like he was gone and that caused so much damage to not like ever process through it. And, you know, when you love someone, you should be able to celebrate that you love them. It, you know, it doesn't matter the reason or how they died. They were a person that was important to you and they're great. So I love that you celebrate it and you had the perfect answer. Okay, I have a couple of questions for Nadine. <laughs> I'll speak. You know, y'all know I'll talk. Um, so, do you mind if I ask you? Okay, ask um, ask away. <laughs> okay. So you mentioned I have actually a few. So pardon me for a minute. Um, so you mentioned survivor's guilt about your friend that you met in the group, and that that's why you stayed because he was your age, you know, and then he passed away. Um, do you, do you survivor's guilt is something that I've been considering with my executive director starting another, I run the all recovery adult meeting, but I've been thinking about starting another one with wake up um, about survivor's guilt, because I know, as you mentioned, I have it um, with my husband passing, you know, it was like, um, and I don't mean any shame on myself when I say this, you guys, but he was the better parent. I mean, I'm just going to say it, you know, and when I say better parent, I'm to specifically mean he has patience. He had patience. Um, he, even in his worst withdrawal, like death, he would get up and cut the strawberries, cut the fruit, you know, make an actual meal, like suffer through it and just make it. I was like, F that I'm laying on my lazy ass on the couch and I'm not moving. You know, that was the, that was the withdrawal me. So he was just a fantastic, phenomenal parent, right? So understanding, strong, you know, like I said, patient, um, all the things. So I am strict and I don't have a lot of patience and um, I'm, you know, I'm in recovery. So obviously the lazy withdrawal part doesn't happen anymore, but um, I have a lot of survivor's guilt from, um, you know, why, why him, not me. Um, and yes, I was sober, like I mentioned about three and a half months before he died. But I mean, why me as in I had just got clean? Why did, why did, you know, and I know purpose and all the things, but what, how did you, for anybody watching that is suffering from survivor's guilt, what helps you get through, you know, feeling that why me, why this, like what helps you get through that and stay sober? So when I first lost my friend uh, back in early recovery, uh, like you mentioned, it was me speaking out about my recovery is what made me feel like I was doing something for him, right? For him and not just for him, but so many others. And it's so interesting because I think when we lose people, right? And we go through grief, it's a, 
incredibly difficult process and grief is very different than depression, which I have been learning. But what I learned that early on in my recovery is just how important it was for me because I went to my friend's funeral and I saw everybody there who was going to celebrate him by using more drugs. Like that hurt. And that for me was so eye-opening because I was like, what? Like it just, it didn't even make any sense to me. Like our friend literally just died from an overdose and now you want to go get messed up by the same stuff to honor him. Like it just didn't make any sense to me. And like, that was just so frustrating. And I was like, I knew that I had to do something different or I was just going to watch all of those people continue to go down the same path. And I knew for myself, like, again, going back, like, I have my own responsibility. Like, this is my choice. I had to have the courage to stand up and speak out. And now I'm able, though, to share his story and speak out about him. And he has been a huge part of my, you know, motivation as to why I've continued to keep moving forward. But what's really interesting about it is... I've now been in this work for the last eight years and back in 2020 when my stepson had passed away, um, he was the 17 year old that I mentioned. His name is Gavin. Uh, He was an incredible child and someone who was very much educated around addiction and recovery and was ingrained in this culture. What's interesting is that you mostly see people speak out after the fact, right? Usually it's after their child has passed away or after the family member has been affected, right? So it was really interesting for us as a family to have been speaking out and for me to work in this space and yet our own son passed from the very thing we were trying to prevent. Survivor's guilt today looks a lot different because I'm still trying to figure out why. (laughs) And I know that maybe I'll never get the exact answers that I'm looking for. But what I do know is that I can continue to be a light. I can continue to be an example of somebody who is in recovery and to continue to let people know that recovery is possible no matter what it looks like. And that for me, even with that feeling of survivor's guilt, like knowing that so many people in my die have so many people in my family have died from the thing that I thought was going to take my life. And I was okay with that back then. Like I didn't see that I had any future at all. And I have to hold on to the fact that I am still living and breathing today. And every single night when I lay my head down, I thank God every day that I have lived another life, another day in this life of my recovery, because it's a gift and it's definitely not something I take for granted. And I know that I can only do so much but I will continue to do my part because like I said, when I lay my head down at night, I know that at least I'm doing my part and that's all I can do, right? We can only do so much, but I can sleep with that feeling of knowing like I'm doing as much as I can. And 
that's all we can do. And being able to share that with other people, like just for you to have the courage to ask me that question and to talk about survivor's guilt, I think having a group for it would be absolutely amazing because it is something that people suffer in silence about and we don't talk about it. And I think it's hard because we don't always have the language or maybe the understanding because everybody grieves differently and everybody's relationship is different. But at the end of the day, like I said, we can continue to be the light and an example and continue to use our stories and our voices to carry on for that person. Absolutely. Can I say something to both Nadine and Amanda? I can't tell you, either one of you, why you lost the people you lost. But I don't think that there's any doubt anyone that's listening or watching knows why you are both here. And, like, it's, it's, it's apparent. So you might not see it yet, but we can see why you guys are both here. Absolutely. And you're all right. I mean, and, and you know, I, I, I do, I guess I, I see, um, you know what I try to, I try to look at, like, I, I keep trying to tell people like it's been four years. Right. So, um, I've done a insane amount of healing. Um, and you know, it's a, it's a different situation. I know, you know, with Nadine, you know, and I said in the comments, you know, I'm very, very sorry for your, for your family's loss. That's, I, um, God, I, I pray. I mean, you know, I'm wake up. Carolina got started from just that. And I, I have it in my prayers, Lord. Like, I don't, I don't know that I could get through it. Maybe I could, I, I don't know. You know, I, I, God, I just hope I never have to find out. Um, so I have even more respect for you because of what you fought through to get where you are. I mean, you just keep up in the bar here. Um, but I know with my loss and it being a spouse, um, you know, that the way I've tried to say to people when they're like, well, how, you know, he, he died and, um, I immediately was talking about it. Um, and you know, you detach, right? Like you emotionally and mentally detach. So you're not there. You're having a conversation just like we are right now. I seem like I'm very involved, right? I could have been just like this and just not even known what the hell I was saying, like just completely out of it. Um, so then it started where I had to pay attention and like keep myself in the moment or I wasn't going to heal. I, I was, I didn't even like deal with grief for years, um, so the last year I've done a lot of healing, a ton of like almost all of my healing has been done in the last year, year and four months. Um, and a lot to do with where I work and having my purpose and my passion. And I was in nursing school. I have a year and a half, a year, year and a half left of nursing school before I get my license. Like I'm done. And when I started working at with the recovery community organization that I work with, I was like, I found so much purpose in running the meetings and then started sharing my stories and all the things that I was like, oh no, that I need to be there. That's where I need to be. So I immediately changed my major to my getting my associate's degree in human services to then try to go back to like addic addic addiction counseling, um, something, you know, along those lines. So finding my passion and my purpose in the last like year or so is really what, um, you know, and, and I, he had a lot to offer. Right. So 
um, what, what did it save them from? You know, we don't know it, you know, obviously they wouldn't have chose to, to die the way that they did. I'm sure, you know, I mean, I'm pretty positive. Um, neither one of them would have chose that. However, if, 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 and if, I know I'm going to speak for only myself. I, I feel that if my, if Kenny would have been given a diagnosis of something bad that he would have chose to, he would have taken this way over that way over suffering. So what was the future? I don't know. But what I do know is that my purpose for being here is very apparent because I will not stop. You know, there is no way to shut me up as you can tell. Um, you know, um, and, I, I, you know, like you said, every day you go to bed and you, you just, you thank God for that other day and you're grateful for it. And since I found my purpose in, in doing this, I do the exact same thing. I, cause I wanted to die. I mean, I, um, you know, that Romeo and Juliet, he goes, I go, you know, kind of weird thing, um, for years. And then, like I said, I found my purpose and it's changed. So, um, I am grateful. I am grateful. And I definitely see, you know, why, why you were here, like Ashley said as well, because you are making huge progress. You're breaking stigmas. You're changing, you're saving lives. You're saving our future. You're changing our future. I mean, you really are. It sounds dramatic sometimes when someone's like, you're, you're saving lives, but you are, you are, you're, and if it's not like a life or death, you're changing lives or saving lives, you are changing their path and preventing them from doing something that might have ruined their life legally, you know? So I'm very glad that I got to participate, um, you know, in this. And I just, I respect you a ton. So thank you for letting me be a part of, you know, hearing your, your testimony and journey tonight. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Thank you, all of you and, and those who are even listening now and who are going to listen later. I know that we are here sharing these stories, like you said, for a reason. And, um, you know, I have definitely questioned, <laughs> like, don't get me wrong, kind of like you said, like, you know, it took you a little while to get to the place you are now of your purpose and passion. Like the last two years after losing so many family members, man, I have questioned everything. You know, like, what am I doing? Like, is it even working? Am I doing enough? And oh, man, if I heard the comments of like, oh, well, you can save all these kids, but you can't save your own family, or you can help all these people, but you can't help the ones that matter most or blah, blah, blah. And that freaking hurts, you know. But at the end of the day, again, like we can't make choices for other people. But I do know how valuable it is, how important it is. And I continue to show up for myself always first, so I can continue to show up for my family and for my community. And that is in part two, why I found a lot of passion over the last two years as a wellness coach, uh, kind of stepping outside of the recovery space and not saying uh, addiction recovery or even mental health, but just really looking at that holistic healing centered approach. And for me, that is where my recovery journey is leading me to, to look beyond the substance use, because now I'm at this point in my life where I'm like, man, my recovery, I have done so much work, like so many deep dives and intensives and trainings and conferences, like you name it. 
I have learned so much about myself and my past and worked through my trauma, like so much more than I ever even really wanted to. But what I have found is that this is just a piece, you know, like this is just the beginning. And I'm starting to see how much of the rest of my life is being impacted by my recovery. And I've really started to focus on like my uh, holistic health, right? So like my fitness, nutrition, I practice gratitude on a daily basis. I am constantly doing personal development, not a lot, but at least 10 to 15 minutes every single day. I'm listening to a podcast, I'm reading a book, or I'm learning from somebody else. And those things for me every single day, like I spend 15 minutes at night, at night stretching before bed. I meditate every night before bed. Like these are all things that I've had to do and daily habits and routines and rituals that I've had to work on. And it has helped so much to get to where I am in my recovery journey. Because let me tell you what, guys, like two years ago, if I wouldn't have had this strong, solid foundation in my life. I have no idea where I would be today because I worked so hard to have that solid foundation. And because of that, though, now, even though things are maybe questioning or difficult or rocky or, you know, I've fallen down or if things are hard and challenging, I still have this incredible community. I mean, you guys, our community, like when our family members passed away, it felt like we were standing on the shoulders of giants because the love and the support and the people who just continued to show up for us like that saved me and that helped me keep going because stuff's going to happen right life's going to get hard it's not always going to be easy but making sure you have that solid foundation and you are taking that you know holistic approach to your recovery however that looks like to you um, so you know that you can make it through even when it gets harder, even when you're questioning your passion or your purpose. I think sometimes when you're questioning your passion and your purpose, that you're exactly where you're supposed to be. You're stretching yourself and you're, it's just that transition to the next growth. I've, the most growth comes in the uncomfortable. It's so true. And that's what it feels like. And it sucks. <laughs> like, I hate it. I do. Me I'm too. sorry. You know, and you feel like what is I, I mean, Brene Brown is like my ultimate hero. She changed my life when I first got recovery, but she says all the time, right? Or I think it's like Theodore Roosevelt, but she uses his quote where it's like when you're face down in the arena and you feel like you've been kicked down, you've been knocked down and you're, you know, you got the sand kicking in your face and you feel like there's nothing left but yet you still have the strength as long as you get back up and you keep going, like no matter how hard it is and no matter how many questions you have, like keep seeking the answers, you know, keep trying new things, keep figuring it out, like you said, cause yeah, it's uncomfortable and it's weird, but I, I, I have to believe, you know, that there is so much more for me um, and that's, you know, continues to push me forward too. It's exciting to grow. It's exciting to to move forward and change. I'm not the person I was when I first got into recovery. I'm not the person I was a year into recovery. And thank God, like, I'm not that person anymore. Like, you know, and in 10 years, I'll be somebody completely different. And, you know, I'll joke and say that's because I'm a woman. But it really is just because when you put in the work, you know, you get deeper and you grow and you 
challenge your own ideas and your own beliefs and that's where cool things happen with age comes wisdom you would know jr just kidding Ding. Ouch. Ouch. Just, he looks younger than me because of his his skin care routine and so i have to give him <laughs> don't even go there it's not <laughs> don't even go he gets told all the time how young he looks and how his, everybody wants the secrets shoot some of my podcasts with chasing hair it was like i mean it was like a quarter of the show was about jr and his skin regimen and how they wanted to ask and told me to ask what it was and how what he did and what he used because he looked so young and that when jr told janine how old he really was she was like there's no way and it was hilarious and you know i love jr like he helped me get the podcast you know with her so I mean, you know, but so I was just like, y'all, listen, you got to ask him. Like, I don't know, but he doesn't look, I, I had no idea. Like I had absolutely, I mean, I thought he was like, you know, maybe early forties. I mean, so when they said like, I think they said like fifties, I was like, no, are you sure? I was like, I don't think so. And that's when we got started. But yeah, it was like an hour of my my podcast it was like at least like 15 20 minutes was like about jr and what he uses and you know how normally people who use drugs look like they age and how he looks so young and it was crazy it's that place that you go the uh, where do you go jr when you that they prison. Don't have yourself i've been so. to prison <laughs> no not there that's, that's gonna make you younger the place that you went that had this small little twin bed that you weren't allowed to have your cell phone that like there was monks and that's stuff prison. oh you're talking about the spiritual retreat yeah that's that's probably the fountain yeah, probably yeah I'm, I'm trying to go back this year too i mean i enjoy it out there it's beautiful it's called uh mepkin abbey Amanda, have you ever heard of it? it's in monk's corner no. Beautiful, beautiful area. Very scenic. On the water. Huh. That's Long, cool. Running, running around in yellow brown robes. I was trying to trying to you know cop one of them, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, they wouldn't share. Yeah, they, they were uh, all strictly vegetarians there too. I'm like, what am I supposed to eat? So the second time I, I went, I brought up a suitcase full of snacks. <laughs> <laughs> Is that like a retreat? Yeah, it is. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's a it's a veterans retreat. They do it on Veterans Day weekend, and it's it's we have uh, workshops. So it's about you know moral injury you know, as a, as a precursor to PTSD. I mean, it's it's usually like you know maybe about ten vets together with with a couple counselors, just sharing and talking. You know, bonding. It's a it's a really great time. Have you heard of the um, America American military family? No. Um, I guess they're based out of like Colorado, but they so they do a lot with like vets. And um, the lady that runs it, her name's Deb. Um, and just like a quick just thought, because I just like connected with her this past week. Um, so their website has like a ton of like mental health, like everything you can think of that like any kind of like vet you know would need. Um, any kind of like assistance, but substance abuse, addiction, recovery, none of that was on there. 
So I wow. reached out to her. Yeah, I know. That's what I said. So I reached out, you know, and um, she said that what they basically do just to make it quick and we can talk more, you know, off air, but um, she basically like, they find vets that are like about to like end it, you know, like they have seven things that they look for addiction and stuff is one PTSD, um, traumatic brain injury, you know, family issues, financial issues. And I can't remember the rest right off the top of my head. But anyway, if they, if they meet, like most of them meet about four and if they're about to like, um, possibly I don't, about five of those that you just named, <laughs> you know, I mean, right. But so if, so if they're about to like unalive their self is how I'll say it. Um, so they, they will go and they will find them and help them. Um, so they used to not mess with um, addiction or like substance abuse at all because of like how like iffy it can be. But now they accept people with substance abuse and they have a few places, but they're, but you know, what she said was like vets um, having a combat veteran and like a, civilian facility can go bad very quickly because they had one like combat bet that was at like a treatment facility. And there was like an 18 year old girl on the phone talking about how she had PTSD from, um, using an, you know, intravenous use, um, on live intravenous use, um, and blew out her vein. And that, that was, that was traumatic. And she had PTSD from that. So a combat vet hearing that who's, you know, in that situation, he did not take that well, you know, because he knows what true, you know, his PTSD is. So they're trying to find places that are specifically for vets and work things up. Anyway, every October they have some kind of a, um, event and I don't know, I, have to, I wrote it down, Oak Island or Oak ridge or oak lands i can't anyway somewhere around this area ish i think it might be north carolina but um also she's going to send me the information because she invited wake up out there and i mentioned i didn't mention your name because i wanted to talk to you first but um i think that you'd find it extremely you know um intriguing and maybe you'd want to go too just because we mentioned the retreat it's all vets and their spouses and it's a bunch of like not like an intervention, you know, but they have a bunch of like booths and tables and opportunities and, you know, like things that they can get involved with that might help them in any kind of, you know, foundations, organizations, grassroots, you know, nonprofits. So, um, you know, I know we can talk about it off air, but I wanted to mention it because it was, um, it was an amazing, I'll send you the website. Cause it's, it's, I think you're, you're going to be floored. I think at how amazing all the things that they do. Okay. Thank you. I mean, You're welcome. I'm doing a, uh, a veteran uh, Pathfinder course in this month or next month out in Johns Island. So that should be fun. Yeah, that sounds fun. Yeah, I did my peer training at Heroes Mile, which is um, a veterans treatment facility. And it's amazing the stuff they, they do equine, they do EMDR, um, they do a lot of like... Um, uh, the reenactment therapy, um, because you know they've lost friends, and you know, so sometimes being able to like, you know, have control of the situation or just your emotions to be able to stop and process them, and the, but just the the innovative stuff that they're doing, you know, it might be worth taking a trip to a facility like that if you're looking at something in for veterans because it's a, a totally different type of treatment than 
what I would need or what I would know about. And it was, it was eye opening and it was amazing. Yeah. It was kind of weird that the, uh, that place you were talking about out in Colorado didn't, wasn't doing the substance use because if you're doing PTSD, then if you've got mental health, then, then I forgot what the stats were that you most likely were, you know, substance use too. Yeah. It, it, it floored me. I, I mean, I was like, I mean, I kept looking, I kept refreshing the page and like looking over and over. Cause I'm like, there's no way that like, they don't have this on their website and there, there was nothing. So she did, you know, she did eventually, you know, we got into it a little more and she did say that, um, you know, that they had, they had a couple places that they could send vets because before they'll help them or even really entertain it, they have to complete a 90 day like treatment if they have like substance abuse. Um, and you know, that's then that's fine. But, um, they've had a lot of success with the places that they're using now, she said, but they need more and they're struggling with finding places for vets. And also that like, um, the VA will, um, pay for, right. Because they don't have a lot. Most people don't have the means to pay for that. Um, so the VA has to be okay with like, you know, paying for like benefit wise, the benefits have to be covered. So they, they really struggle. Um, so she did say that, you know, we were going to, we are continuing to talk and she's going to recommend anybody. She said she knew a good bit of people in South Carolina, you know, like my area that, um, you know, are here, live here. So meetings and stuff like that. But, um, I really couldn't believe that they were, they were kind of like behind on the substance, not behind. Cause that's not maybe the right way, but it just wasn't on their website. Right. So like they do have resources, but she made it clear that they did not have enough. And that broke my heart because to me, I believe first responders of all, you know, police, EMS, fire, firemen, all, I, everybody is as a hero, it's a real life hero. But most of all, our vets are their real life heroes. Right. I mean, the, the GI Joe ain't got nothing on the real vet. Right. I mean, let's, let's be real here. Like, they need to be helped over to me, just about over anybody. I mean, they have risked the reason that we're able to have organizations and nonprofits are because they risked their health, their mental health, physical health, everything for us. So they need better care. And it, it, it hurt me that, you know, she was struggling with finding substance abuse resources for vets. So, um, Maybe I'll have to connect you guys. Maybe there's some, you know, something that y'all could do that would, you know, help. There's a lot of silos and a lot of people don't. I mean, let's be real. Substance use disorder is in the DSM-5 and now it's the DSM-5-TR. So it's a mental health diagnosis. So if you treat mental health diagnosis, mental health disorders, then you should be educated and aware about substance use disorder as well. And Right now, a lot of places treat them as two separate things. They're silos, and you need, they need to be aware and educated and, and know how to treat it holistically because if you have trauma, if you have PTSD, and you have substance use disorder, you can't recover or, or progress from your trauma, your PTSD, while you still have that substance use disorder, and you can't really hard to get over your substance use disorder while you're still having, you know, flashbacks or you're having, you know, you're dealing with the trauma. So, you know, the silos really 
is sad and hopefully that's one of the big things that people educate themselves on sooner rather than later. That is uh, true at the VA because I, I was uh, a dual diagnosed with uh, mental health and substance use disorders and they wouldn't treat the mental health until I sobered up and went through their uh, treatment program. So, I mean, to me, I think you got to do, do somehow you got to do both of them together because we're up and then I'm looking at life and I don't know how to deal with all this other shit. I'm going right back to the drugs. <laughs> Cause I was like, I don't want to see that stuff. I mean, I don't know how to deal with it. So that was one of the things that I argued with when I was, when I was in early recovery and, you know, five shrinks later, you know, I'm doing much better. <laughs> Dual diagnosis is something that, thank goodness, because um, I really, um, I really think we have a super, super, like huge, insanely huge need for um, facilities. Because a lot of facilities years ago didn't do like dual diagnosis. You know, it was addiction or it was mental health, mental health or addiction, right? It was never both. And so now, finally. Um, even like when I got my CPSS, my certified peer support specialist, you know, certificate, whatever. Um, the reason that we picked SC share for me to go through at wake up Carolina, like we chose it was because they did dual diagnosis. They did like mental health with, so instead of one certificate for my CPSS, I got four, you know, like suicide prevention, ask, you know, like that kind of stuff. Um, and I think that's so important because like we just said, if, if somebody has a mental health you know, illness, it's, you're probably going to have some kind of like addiction with it. Right. I mean, it's very common and they're finally starting, like Ashley said, you know, DSM five and all like they're finally, um, speaking on it and approving it to be called, you know, you know, any kind of relation to mental health. Cause they fought it. I feel like they fought it for so long. Um, but dual diagnosis, you know, was not common and it finally is becoming more common. But like you said, if you fix one and you don't fix the other, then you're not fixing really anything because if you fix my mental health, but you don't fit, you know, like fixing one doesn't automatically fix the other. So if you get me off the dope, if you get me off the hair, when you get me off the, what a benzos, whatever, right. Then I still have mental health issues. I'm most likely going to fall back into the same pattern. But if you take away and you get me off the drugs and then you help me with my mental illness, then I'm most likely going to be more successful. And it seems like it should be so easy to, that should be such an easy thing to comprehend. <laughs> However, um, it was not comprehensible for so many people for so long. So I just, I love the fact that dual diagnosis, like the facilities, treatment, meetings, um, you know, diagnosis in general are starting to be paired together because it needed to be for so long. And that would have helped maybe save lives if it would have happened before, if they wouldn't have pushed back so hard, it could have saved tons of lives. Yeah. I mean, the numbers are staggering. It's like, um, People with bipolar disorder, 80% also struggle with a substance use disorder. 80%, that's huge numbers, you know, and trauma, PTSD, the numbers are really high with both of those as well. And after COVID, I think we can easily say there's 100% of the population that's still with trauma. 
That's what I've especially seen with adolescents because most schools, like we're saying, or even before, right? Like NAMI is an incredible organization and I know that they are definitely providing incredible resources. And that's just one. I know here locally, um, we have a lot of org- uh, programs uh, like Sources of Strength, for example, that very much focuses on suicide prevention and definitely the mental health aspect, which is so vital and so important. And it's also important, like you said, to make sure that we're including that substance use piece and, you know, still bringing in the language around substance use. And uh, because it does, it goes hand in hand. And if young people are already struggling because of some of the trauma that they experience and some of their mental health is, you know, already uh, at a struggling, right, with their mental health, then they're going to be using substances to cope. Um, And so how can we, you know, continue to bring this conversation and, and break down those silos and help people understand that it is one and the same, that they do go hand in hand, um, especially at an earlier age. I don't think there's anything else we can say on that. I think that's 100% true. Uh, I'm waiting on Ashley to see our comments, Brett. I see them. I don't know what what organization you speak of. So they have a NAMI in Florida? Yeah, they might. They might have 24 affiliates underneath them. The state organization. Yeah, there there might be. Who's the the El Presidente of NAMI, Florida? I don't know. I heard she's in long-term recovery, though. I heard she's the baddest, most beautiful, amazing woman that has ever hit this platform. Whoa, that's a lot. Hey, I got the ding. I got the ding. See, that means that everything I just said was a thousand percent correct. Remember, see, president of NAMI, Florida. Yes. (laughs) That's why she's the superstar. Yep. No, it's it's um, it's one of those things. We were talking about it today at a meeting, and it's like, you know, NAMI is one of the few organizations for mental health that's not clinicians. That's people with lived experience and family members, and there, there's allies there too. But, you know, we always say in recovery, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And it's the same thing. Like, Ooh, I like that. if we are not yeah. at the table, we are on the menu. If we can't complain about policy, we can't complain about um, treatment centers not being aware of dual diagnoses if we don't educate them because we've lived it. Yes. So true. <laughs> I just heard that recently too, that if you're, yeah, if you're not on the, if we're not at the table, then we're on the menu. I just heard that at our, um, we did a mobilized recovery event recently in, in Madison. Um, or what is it? Recovery Alignment Day. Um, and it was, yeah, just to hear things like that is so true. We have to be there. We have to be at the table. We have to be the ones that are speaking out, breaking the silos, bringing these things together. Um, so, yeah, thank you for the work that you're doing. Have to do it. Purpose, you know? Yes. Otherwise, what what is there, you know? Exactly. Ah, I love that. Well, it is almost 10 o'clock here in Florida. And I turn into a pumpkin. Not really, but 
it's been really great. So you're telling me there's a chance. Oh, that was the wrong one. Oh, you're scaring me. <laughs> so I've been working at a job site that's like almost two hours away. So I, I leave my house at like 530 in the morning. And so I'm like so tired so early. My kids are actually in Texas for the summer with their dad. So I'm like sleep before 11. Like that sounds like better than ice cream. <laughs> All righty. Well, Brett, I hope you have a great Father's Day. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. And Amanda, I hope your celebration goes great. And I respect the fact of everything you're doing. You're doing a great job. Thank you. Nadine, Brett, thank I hope you. you have a great Father's Day as well. Thanks. Nadine, it was great having you here. Yes. And JR, I don't... I don't want to give you a big head, so I'm glad you're here. You hey. have a, you have a good puppy Father's Day. Fur baby, fur baby Father's Day. Bentley's running around here somewhere. I I felt him nudge me a minute ago. I think it's time for him to go outside. <laughs> they go out a lot, don't they? Like every time I talk to you, you're taking them out. Oh yeah, <laughs> spoiled. No, he pees a lot. He pees a lot. <laughs> that's not being swallowed. It's, it's trying to be safe. <laughs> Saving the floor. Well, Nadine, it was an absolute pleasure to get to know you and, and uh, about your organization. I love that you guys are going into the schools. I mean, to me, that is that that's some big-time stuff right there because that's that's one area that I'm all about. But I wouldn't know how to do that. I mean, I would be, I would be intimidated going in there with, with high school kids. Yeah, it it uh, it is intimidating, um, you know. But sometimes I find it easier to speak to youth than I do to adults. <laughs> and I know that's wild, but most of the time I feel like adults are like off in la la land or they're not paying attention. But man when you when we speak to students i swear like you can hear a pin drop like they are paying attention um because they want to hear it like they want to learn um so yeah i just i thank you for giving me this platform to share a little bit of my journey and just talk about the work that we're doing it is definitely my life purpose and i look forward to seeing you know where this journey and those programs continue to go even beyond what i'm able to do and especially you know with all of you guys, thank you for the work that you're doing in your communities and across the nation. Like it is life changing, life saving work, right? Um, and and it matters. It all matters. So thank you. I appreciate each and every one of you so much. Hey, if we're not at the table, we're on the menu. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's totally a stolen quote from yeah. somebody at Mobilize, Ryan or Garrett, one of them. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I'm gonna reward it and throw a quote on her. Tag it. <laughs> oh, that's what so I do. <laughs> All right, you want to close us out, Brett? I would love to close us out. Oh, I should get like some fun outro music too. That would be good. One last thing, if anybody has um, questions uh, about the work that we do with Rise Together, I know you listed my personal website, NadineMoscovich.com. 
but you can also head to weallrisetogether.org right there, uh, where you can find more information about our programs and the work that we've done. Awesome. I'm Thank so you. excited. We're having a youth conference, well, a young adult conference this year for the first time with our state conference. And so I'm very excited. And they got to pick the topics um, that they wanted to hear about. So, Nadine, but, are you part of Mobilize Recovery? You yes. You a lot about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ryan, he's a very good friend of mine. Uh, I met him before Mobilize. He was actually sat on Rise Together's advisory board when he first got into recovery. Okay. So doing, doing good work. Ryan and Garrett are great people. And it links all back to Florida. So see, we're all linked somehow. Seriously. <laughs> That's what's so cool, though. Like, I went to Mobilize this last year in Vegas. This is my first time. Um, I wasn't able to make it the previous years, but I, it's so incredible to see, like when we come together as advocates, like how freaking powerful it was, all of us in one room and like, even not just in the room, but also online and to see how all of us are truly connected. Um, like just, oh, it fueled me so much. It just made me feel so good because like sometimes you feel like when you're in your work and you're in the zone and like you're trying to make a difference right in your community, you're just like, oh man, like why, you know, you kind of feel like you're the only one or that you're doing all this work and, you know, you feel like all this pressure is on your back, but yet you go back and we go to something like Mobilize Recovery where it just reminds us that we have an entire community of individuals that are advocating and speaking out and wanting to make a difference. Like it was, it felt so good, especially after this last, you know, two years, I kind of had to take a step back in my advocacy journey and not put myself out there as much just because I've been grieving and working through some of my own things with our family losses. But it just, it felt good to know that people are still showing up and doing the work and saving lives. There's 23 million of us. It's amazing. We need to make our voices matter. Exactly. Amen. We're trying. Absolutely. It's amazing that the three of us were all there. And I mean, I met JR, but I don't think either of us met you. And there was only what, like 200 people there this year, right? In person. Yeah, I think because we could only have so many, right? We all had to test for COVID and yeah yeah i was um yeah i well so yeah i was there the entire time i did get invited up to the penthouse with uh the owners actually of the westgate um victoria's voice uh their daughter right they lost victoria and so they were doing like a fundraiser that night and we got to go up and share a little bit of our story and um connect with them oh my gosh look at that <laughs> wait is that literally tonight's giveaway no, but oh, there's, okay. There's I was the like, cover. no. Okay, I was like, wait a second, that's so weird. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're just doing incredible work, and um, it is crazy that we were all there. But what else was I gonna say? I was going somewhere with that. I don't remember. But um, yeah, I don't know. But we met all now, and I'm glad that we're able to. <laughs> yeah, one day I want to meet. They live, you know, in Orlando is where that situation happened with their daughter. And so like, that's only an hour from where I'm, where I'm at. That's where our conference is. And we have a sheriff's office that not that far away that they refuse to carry Narcan. And the family um, has 
you know, they have a foundation that they'll provide it for law enforcement officers to carry it and the sheriffs, you know, so, you know, one day I want to reach out with, you know, and try to team up with them and use, you know, their story and my platform and try to get these officers to carry some Narcan. Honestly, seriously. All right, Britt, it's on you to close it. I'm ready. Here I am. If you guys are joining us tonight on YouTube, please be sure to subscribe to the channel, turn your notifications on so you know when we go live, which is every Thursday. If you guys would like to send us a voice message that we can use on the show, answer questions, comments, tell JR how young he looks, compliment my beard, anything along those lines comments complaints concerns you can go to speak-2.us slash rrl and you can leave a voice message and we would like to thank everyone that tuned in tonight and everybody that's going to watch this after the broadcast ends thank you guys for sticking with us listening to the show and we hope you got something out of it and we will be back next thursday with another episode and remember progress not perfection